Welcome back to the Adventure Almanac podcast. Stories about adventure and what we learn along the way. Thank you for listening. We appreciate all your encouragement and it has been great watching those five-star reviews show up. You have no idea how much that helps. This episode is a little different. It's not about a specific adventure, but a life of pushing through the unknowns and incredible challenges. This intro was also sponsored by the letter P. You'll see what I mean in a second. This episode is about Marshall Major Taylor and the difference between patience and perseverance. Patience is passive, accepting of challenges. Perseverance is active and doing something despite the challenges. Marshall Taylor was the first black American to win a world championship. As a cyclist in the 1890s and early 1900s, he broke records and racial barriers. His racing career was full of challenges on and off the track, but he persevered against all odds. Are you ready for an adventure? All right now, let's go. One of the greatest joys of riding a bicycle is the feeling of freedom. On a bicycle, the world is full of possibilities. You can go anywhere. When you push the pedals, you magically move forward. Your loose clothing flapping like a bird building speed at any moment ready to take flight. The road ahead is an opportunity to see how far you can go using your own power and your own ambition. Taylor woke up before the sun rose. He always woke up before the sunrise. He was one of eight kids on a small horse farm near Indianapolis, and everyone was up before the sunrise. Taylor was small. He was often jokingly asked if he was a jockey. Taylor didn't even like horses. As he rubbed his eyes, he proudly looked at the bike at his feet. The metal frame sparkled in the morning light like the dew on the pastures outside. It was 1890, only 25 years after the end of the Civil War, and he knew this bike would change everything. Finally, he was able to dream new dreams and imagine freedom like never before. He had seen other bicycles, but the new safety bikes with inflatable tires and a crank and chain were exciting and different. The world was moving from nature to machine. Bicycles were competing with horses for space on the dirt roads, and it was now possible to move faster than ever before. A person on a bike could race a horse and win. Taylor knew it wasn't going to be easy. After the failure of reconstruction, black people were again pushed to the margins of society. There were also rumors that horseback riders and carriage drivers were attacking white cyclists in the street and trying to get bikes banned from the roads. Yeah, it definitely wasn't going to be easy. But Taylor knew he was fast, really fast. He could beat all the other boys in races. In fact, he could ride circles around the others while doing a handstand. Taylor dreamed that cycling would be his ticket to explore the world. After tutoring, he and the other boys gathered around the newspaper to read the results of races from all around the country. Taylor imagined the riders speeding around the tracks at 30, 40 miles per hour in front of thousands of people. In his mind, he was right there with the cyclist. The mass pileups, flipping over handlebars, and thrown elbows didn't scare him. After all, he was 12. Nothing could stop him. He kept practicing and he got stronger and better at riding. He landed a job cleaning the floors at a bike shop in town, and soon he was performing tricks in front of the store to applauding crowds. He taught cycling lessons and everyone said he was a great teacher. Yet he wasn't allowed to join the gym and train like the other cyclists in town. And when he entered the amateur races, he was threatened and booed. Then the stock market crashed and the US economy went into depression. A third of the US population was unemployed 
and over 90% of people live below the poverty line. There were riots and strikes, limited opportunities, and a desperate search for hope. Black people became scapegoats for every problem, and the whites-only movement was growing. Despite the oppression and depression, and only being 15 years old, Taylor left his job and started his cycling career. There was just one minor problem. The race managers kept banning him from competing. But when people told Taylor he couldn't do something, it just made him want it more. The rain was already pouring down as Taylor hid behind a tree, waiting for his moment to secretly join the 75-mile race. With a flash of the starting pistol, Taylor rolled out from behind the tree and entered the race in last place. Before anyone realized he was there, he began weaving his way through the group. Shouts, threats, and racial slurs slammed into him as riders tried to drive him off the road. He pressed on, nose to his handlebars, arched back, and his powerful legs pushed him forward. And then, it really began to rain. The clay roads turned into a wheel-sucking, muddy mess. All of the riders were soaked, exhausted, and covered in mud. Every pedal stroke was a grind. Then, Taylor saw his opportunity. He stood up on his pedals and made his move. He took the lead. He wanted it more, and he charged ahead. And as he neared the finish line, he looked behind him, and no one was there. No one could match him. He won a race that no one could even finish. Taylor focused on improving, but when he showed up to competitions, he was prevented from racing. That didn't stop him. When the race was over, he rode around an empty track. Spectators watched in amazement as he competed against himself and rode faster than anyone in the previous race. This show of speed infuriated the track owners and other cyclists. Soon, he couldn't find anywhere to compete. Broke but still chasing the dream, Taylor and his patron, Bertie Munger, took a chance on the unknown and embarked on an adventure to Massachusetts. When he arrived on the East Coast, Taylor finally saw his chance to be judged equally and on his own merit. He got a job at Munger's new bike factory and started training. When he tried to join the local YMCA, he was surprised. They allowed him to join the gym and train just like the other cyclist. Taylor established a strict nutrition and training routine. His training secret was that he had incredibly high standards for himself. He ate a simple diet, didn't smoke, drink, or do drugs. He woke up early in the morning and was on his bike almost every moment that he wasn't working. His dedication to training was his superpower. Even the challenge of the George Hill climb in Worcester, Mass. was no match for Taylor. The steep dirt road stopped many cyclists halfway up, but Taylor rode a single-speed bike up to the summit twice, back-to-back, -back, stunning the crowd and setting a record that stood for over 30 years. When he placed sixth in his first big amateur event on the East Coast, the newspapers didn't mention his skin color, and he thought he might finally have a chance. A fair chance. However, that moment didn't last. In his very next race, a cold reality stopped him in his tracks. Again, while officials were debating if he should be allowed to compete, he entered the race anyway. It was a short race, his specialty. He was leading the group as he came around the last corner. Pouring sweat and fighting for every inch, he was tied for the lead. Then out of nowhere, someone in the crowd stepped onto the street and threw a bucket of ice water in his face. Taylor nearly wrecked and dropped from the lead. His dream of escaping racism was gone. A few months later, in 1896, the Supreme Court decided the infamous separate but equal case and closed the door of opportunity for black men and women for generations. Taylor heard the sirens of the fire engines. Everyone could hear their mournful call. 
a nearby bike factory had caught on fire and was destroyed. Taylor could sense something was changing. He was 18 years old and he was ready for another leap. He left his job and became a professional cyclist. His first call was to an influential Irishman who was sympathetic to discrimination. Taylor rambled about his achievements and his dreams and somehow convinced the man to buck the system and let Taylor enter his first professional competition. Perhaps in a show of defiance, he selected lucky number 13 for his professional jersey. When Taylor walked into Madison Square Gardens, the largest auditorium in the world, the noise and smell of a thousand people cheering and yelling blasted from every door and window. They were waiting and watching, not for him, but he knew he was ready, and soon they'd be chanting his name. Taylor guided his bike to the starting line. Ignored by the other racers and barely considered by the boisterous betting crowd, it was up to him alone to make his name. The riders lined up elbow to elbow, hunched forward over their curved handlebars and staring straight ahead, waiting for the moment, their moment. The starting pistol went off and Taylor leapt into the lead and didn't stop. One lap, two laps, three laps, four laps. He sped half a mile in a minute. He won. The crowd went crazy. They were stunned. Five laps, six laps. He was still going and they were still cheering. He had beaten the reigning American champion in the half mile sprint and he couldn't stop pedaling and smiling. With barely enough time to comprehend his first professional win, he wired his mom his first cash prize. The race organizers gathered around him and begged him to compete in the main event, the six-day race. He had never competed in a six-day race and only trained for a sprint. It seemed like a bad idea. The rules of the six-day race were simple. The cyclist who could ride the farthest distance in six days won. Fueled by cocaine and opium, riders pushed the limits of endurance and sleep deprivation. He would be competing against 28 of the greatest long-distance cyclists alive, and he only had a couple of hours to prepare. It was a festival of human exhaustion. Taylor challenged the other riders in short sprints and chatted with fans to keep things interesting. But eventually he tired. 18 hours of straight pedaling will do that to a person. He crashed, he hallucinated, and he begged to quit. But when police commissioner Teddy Roosevelt stopped the race early, there were only four men left on the track, and Taylor had managed to ride almost 1,800 miles, a new six-day record. Unfortunately, he wasn't the only one to break records on that day, and his effort wasn't enough to win the event, but his attitude and endurance were enough to capture the attention of thousands of fans and the press. At that moment, he became an unlikely hero. His dramatic sprinting style was a crowd favorite. Coming down the backstretch with only a couple hundred yards to go, he would find another level of speed and jump from behind and lead the pack across the finish line. Sometimes he won by 50 feet or more, sometimes he won by inches. Sometimes he was the first to cross the finish line, but didn't win the race because the referees didn't think he should win. Although he didn't win all the time, he won a lot more than people thought he could or should win. He fought for every inch and the crowd loved him for it. Cheers for Taylor accompanied a cascade of straw hats, roses, and pamphlets as he rode victory laps. Yet as the crowd was cheering and the press was singing his praises, he was called terrible things. For most of his career, he was beaten up, threatened, run off tracks, and run out of towns. He was excluded from membership into cycling associations, suspended from races, and prevented from competing. Despite, or perhaps because of his popularity, Track owners tried to block him at every chance. 
Other cyclists conspired to bring him down or flat out refused to race him because they believed he was inferior. His biggest worry wasn't would he win or would he be allowed to compete, but would he die trying? To earn enough championship points, he kept an intense travel schedule to find races that would allow him to compete. When visiting a new town, he never knew what trouble he would face, or if he would be allowed to stay in a hotel or even find a meal at a restaurant. In these difficult times, he returned to his core values. He believed that every race was his to win or lose. He competed as a gentleman and won on his own merit. He didn't boast or cheat, conspire or trick in any way that would diminish his achievements. He believed in himself, and he knew that if he could stay in top physical condition, he was the best rider out there. And against all odds, he won. Taylor set 33 new world records, breaking three records in one day and seven different world records in six weeks. He ventured into the unknown time and time again. He searched for freedom and raced for equality when America was anything but free and equal. In a few short years, he became the fastest cyclist in the world, a champion, and one of the most famous athletes alive. His fame took him by steamship to Europe and Australia. When he arrived, he didn't know if he'd be killed or cheered in the foreign land. He went anyway. He believed that given the opportunity, he was as fast as anyone out there. Taylor made his own path and raced his own race. He took immense joy in winning races, not because of the money, although he did earn a lot of it, but because every time he won, he demonstrated that others were wrong. He raced to prove that he was the equal of any man and showed that he was faster on the track than almost anyone. I can't imagine any of the challenges that Taylor faced. It's humbling. And this wasn't even the full story. Do you know anyone that might be interested in stories like these? Maybe try sharing something you learned or tell someone your own version of the story. I recommend that they check us out. Music in today's episode was by Jazar and Kevin McLeod. This podcast is produced by the team at Adventure Nerds. Look out for our next episode about a botanist who started her career late in life and took her passion for adventure across North and South America. Until next time. Be curious and choose adventure. Where did you dream of riding your first bike?